Father, bless the study of your word tonight. Bless this time that we get to share together. Thank you so much, Father, for the just the commitment everybody has to being here and moving through this fantastic book. Father, we know that you, you declared that this book is a guaranteed blessing for those who read it and heed the things that are written in it. And I pray that those blessings will be sensed and known and felt. That, Father, as we study, people would actually be able to apply or recognize the blessing that comes directly from the study of the book of Revelation. Truly, Father, this is, not, this is unlike any other book in the Bible. Unlike any other book within the book that's unlike any other book. And, uh, Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful you chose to see fit that, that, that all these things would be, would be written down for us. So help us in our study. Uh, Father, I pray that you will give us clear understanding and to help me not to get too hyper, but just to move us through your word at a good pace and show us what you want to show us tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight again, we're going to begin our study in Revelation in an Old Testament book. So you may want to just lay your finger there in Revelation 9 and turn back to the book of the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 1, to the right somewhat of the midpoint of the Bible. It's right after Hosea, right, Hosea right before Amos, book of Joel. <clears throat> As you're turning there, Joel is the the prophecy in the Old Testament that deals with, talks about, focuses on, and points to the day of the Lord, the darkest period of Earth's history. Actually, of Earth's history yet to come. Joel discusses and talks about the worst of the worst, that which is going to happen, that which is yet to come. And there's a triple threat to what Joel will discuss. We'll begin in chapter 1, verse 1. A couple of things to show you here before we move on into Revelation tonight. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion. It has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine awake and my fig tree splinters. And has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Skip on down to verse 14. Consecrate a fast, he says. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day. The day of the Lord is near or approaches. And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains. 
So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it. Nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Now before Joel even gets going on the day of the Lord, he indicates a connection between the day of the Lord, this day of judgment, and a gnarly little creature, well known and understood for wreaking havoc in the Middle East. Gnawing, swarming, creeping, stripping locusts. And these little buggers are symbols of a triple threat in this book. Number one, it's a historic threat. A historic threat. For shortly after Joel's prophecy, northern Israel was struck by a massive locust plague. Destroying much of the land. David Levy in his excellent book, Joel, the Day of the Lord, says the following. He says, those in the Middle East call locusts the army of God. As an army, they march in a regular order, camp in the field at night, and in the morning, rise with the sun, dry their wings, and fly in the direction of the wind. Now, the Bible tells us something else interesting about locusts. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 27 says, The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. So apparently locusts, as they will attack, as they descend on a field or a region, will go out in ranks. There's a certain order to the way that they fly, to the devastation that they bring. They go out as if an army coming in, in order. And yet the Bible says, and it's important to note, they have no king. They have no king. Levy continues in his writing, he says, They number in the billions, they can cover an area up to ten miles in length and five miles wide, that have been known to fly 17 hours at a time covering over 1,500 miles. Their vast number can blot out the sun, bringing temporary darkness over the east. And Joel, as he wrote about the gnawing, swarming, creeping, stripping locusts, was talking about something that was about to happen, did happen, that was literal, historical, a historic threat. It was very real, it was very immediate, but it was also symbolic of an even greater threat. A historic threat, a symbolic threat, for the people of northern Israel were indeed overrun by a massive locust-like army. The year was 722 B.C. Two dates to, to know, actually three, to really get down in the history of Israel. 722 B.C., 586 B.C., and 70 A.D. For these are three uh, terrifying times in the history of Israel. 722 B.C. was the attack of the Assyrians on northern Israel. 586 B.C. would be the attack of the Babylonians on southern Israel. And of course, A.D. 70 was Rome completely destroying Israel and driving the Jews out altogether. But in 722 B.C., the Assyrians attacked. They were brutal and bloody, known as one of the most brutal uh, people groups in history, and they dragged the Israelites all the way back to Assyria with fish hooks in their mouths. This was a brutal people. So Joel was talking about a historic threat, truly talking about locusts, but also indicating by the locusts this picture of the army of Assyria that would come in and devastate the land of northern Israel. But it also is finally a prophetic threat. Speaking of the day of the Lord. Joel called, or it's also called the, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. It's a period determined for all of Israel, and about this day, Joel writes again in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. And Jesus echoes this divine promise, talking about the tribulation. Matthew 24, 21, he says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And that's where we're at in our study in Revelation. You can flip on over to Revelation 9 now. We're in that time of the great tribulation. 
Jesus divided the tribulation period, the seven year period talked about in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. He divided it into the tribulation and the great tribulation. The tribulation will be those first three and a half years. Wrath is being poured out, but not so bad as the last three and a half years where we watch the trumpet judgments sound and then finally the bowl judgments will sound last and the devastation is incredible. But just as Joshua previewed the first four trumpet judgments, the book of Joel previews the next two trumpet judgments that we'll look at tonight in Revelation 9. Now you may remember from last week, if you're here and we're studying together, we looked at the first four trumpet judgments. And we see divine judgment likely utilizing human agency. Because the picture of the first four trumpet judgments is that of a global nuclear war. You read through those, it looks like a nuclear war has occurred, it's likely that that's what will happen. Hail and fire mixed with blood burns a third of the earth. A great burning mountain boils a third of the sea. A great star called Wormwood poisons a third of the fresh waters. And the sun, moon, and stars are struck, darkening the earth by a third, by 33%. And now we come to the last three trumpet judgments. And verse 13 of chapter 8 says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle or an angel flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So the last three trumpets are also called the three woes, because they are incredibly devastating. Something changes. Something happens that's different now with these last three trumpet blasts. What is that? We will move from the natural to the supernatural. We're going to move from human agency and God using humanity on humanity for divine judgment now to the demonic and the demonic realm and literally all hell starts to break loose. Chapter 9 verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. This is not just another falling star. This is not another wormwood. This star is referred to with a personal pronoun, the word him. Him. The phrase, by the way, which had fallen is dead on in the New American Standard Bible. In the Greek, and I know you're into this kind of thing, but it's the aorist past tense. The aorist past tense. It literally is the star which had fallen. The star which had fallen. Some translations say the star, I saw a star falling or, or fall, a star in the process of falling. Well, this is a star that had fallen previously. The star fell previously, it's referred to as a hymn, and it refers us to an event that had taken place a long time ago, referring to one we know of as Lucifer, the day star, the shining one. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19, give this incredible prophecy of Satan and his fall. It's a dual prophecy, referring at part to the king of Tyre, but also referring to Satan. It tells us in Ezekiel 28, number one, that Satan was an anointed cherub, very high up on the ladder, high up on the rung in heaven. It's likely he was a worship leader, by the way. We were just talking about this with the worship team on Sunday night, that what more likely place for Satan to try to attack a church than with its worship team? Because he himself, it tells us that his timbrels and his pipes were prepared for him in the day that he was created. That he was the embodiment, you could say, of music. And is it any wonder that so much music presents evil today? 
For this is a characteristic of Satan, this anointed cherub, possibly the highest ranking angel in heaven. We'll flip over for a moment to Isaiah 14. These are the two chapters, by the way, that give us the most historical information about Satan. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. The two places to go in the Old Testament to to try and find a little bit about the background of Satan. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, literally Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened, you who have weakened the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, or the angels. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And if you look in verses 13 and 14, obviously Satan has eye trouble. (laughs) Because it's all about him. Verse 15, nevertheless you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook the kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness or literally a wasteland? And overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? The Bible tells us that in a day yet future, Satan's going to be thrust down to the pit. And when that happens, everybody's going to look at him and say, this was the bad guy? This was the guy who was so evil? People have this mixed up notion somehow that in hell, Satan is the ruler. No. <laughs> Through all eternity, Satan will experience hell just like everybody else who experiences hell. No greater, no worse. He will be there along with anybody else. Ain't nobody at that point. He is not all we make him out to be. Although very powerful, although extremely evil. Yet if we walk with the power of God, what do we have to fear from him? He has no power over those who are covered by the blood of Christ. But here's this picture of Satan cut off. Cut off from heaven. Cut down to the earth. And in Luke's gospel, there's an interesting comment that Jesus makes referring to Satan's falling and the reason why he fell. And mark this, it's important. Jesus sends out his 70 70 disciples. This is in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. He sends 70 people out. These are not the 12, by the way. These are 70 other disciples who he sends out on a mission. Their mission is to go ahead of him into all the towns and cities and prepare those towns and cities for his arrival. To preach about him. To heal people, to cast out demons, to basically prepare the land for the coming of Messiah into these different areas and to herald his coming. And Luke chapter 10 verse 17 tells us about their return. Jesus sent them out, now they're all coming back to him. And it says they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, I used to read this and think, oh, okay, well, what Jesus is saying, he's speaking metaphorically, and what he's saying is, you gave Satan a black eye. Man, you went out there on the mission field, you did a great job, and it was just like Satan falling out of heaven all over again. I think that's, you know, you guys just did great. You punched him out. I don't think it's metaphorical any longer. When I read this, I was watching, in the Greek, it's the word theoreto. theoreto. It's where we get our word theory. But it literally means, I beheld, I watched 
with consideration. It's in the imperfect tense referring to a continuous action that happened in the past. I was watching, Jesus said, as Satan fell. Now Jesus often does this in his teaching. Someone comes along and they make a comment to him and rather than answer their question directly, he goes off in this tangent, this other direction. We wonder, what are you doing, Jesus? What is Satan falling? Watching Satan fall, what does this historical event have to do with what's going on right now? And it has everything to do with it. Listen, the disciples come back to Jesus, they're pumped up, and they say, even the demons are subject to us. And they add, in your name. We have the power to cast out demons. Man, we were doing great ministry. Our work out there was awesome. We were casting out demons right and left. You should have been there, Jesus. I was, he would say. But it was great work. It was incredible ministry. And listen, ministry, when things especially are going well, can be a real head trip. can really make you feel like you've got something here. Like you're really on top of it. It can be an emotional charge and a total blast for the ego. And so Jesus says, you're all excited about your ministry. You're all pumped up. That's great. Be careful. I was there. And I saw Satan fall as a star from heaven. We get the real context as Jesus continues to talk to the 70. In verse 19 of Luke chapter 10, he says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you? He says, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Amen. That's something worth getting excited about. That's what you want to be pumped up. Not the work that you're doing here. Hey, it's great work. And I've given you the power to do it. But don't get excited about that. I saw Satan get excited about that. And he fell from heaven. Satan got puffed up in his ministry. Satan started to rise up and say, I will ascend. I am a great angel. I am a, I'm a being of great power. I'm going to ascend up above God. And he fell for it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't get so into what you're doing that you, like Satan, find that you fall. Don't be so impressed with yourself. No, rejoice in this, that your name is written in the book of life. So the star fell. And the Lord declares that through Isaiah, he recalls that through Luke, that Satan's arrogance brought him down to the earth, which is why Satan's called the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3, Paul says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But gang, I remind you, the God of this world has a dark future. And Revelation chapter 20 tells us in no uncertain terms that he will be thrust down to the recesses of the bottomless pit. Pit, the word pit. Go back to Revelation chapter 9. The bottomless pit in verse 1 of Revelation 9 is literally in the Greek, the abuso. The abuso or the abyss. He will be thrust down into the abyss. And mark this, understand this, the abyss is not Hades, it is not hell. This is a different place. This is not the same location. It's a literal prison of horror that even the demons themselves desire to avoid. Even the demons don't want to end up in the abuso, in the abyss. You may recall the story in Luke chapter 8. 
Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Gerasenes. And as he gets off the boat with his apostles, here comes this man, possessed, so possessed, that when they ask him his name, he says, Legion, for we are many. <laughs> it's a little frightening. And so Jesus is talking with this man, and as he's about to cast out the demons, do you remember what they say? Don't send us into the abyss. Whatever you do, don't send us into the abuso. Send us into those pigs over there. Which, by the way, the pigs shouldn't have been there in the first place. There, they, there shouldn't have been this herd of pigs. That would not be a kosher situation. And so the pigs are there and they say, cast us into the pigs. And so Jesus did. And you know what happened? They all went scrambling down the side of the cliff and off into the sea and they became deviled ham. Is what happened. It was a literal bay of pigs, you might say. <laughs> so that's what happened to them. But, but listen, and don't miss this, it's important. The demons were afraid of the abyss. Don't send us there. Something that would horrify a demon has got to be pretty bad. So here we are in Revelation 9. The fallen star, Satan himself, is given a key. The hymn. He's given a key, and the key is to the bottomless pit. Not to Hades, not to hell. The bottomless pit. We'll explain this a little bit better. But if you're saying, well, wait a minute, the abuso, the abyss is something other than hell or Hades. What is it? What is it? The Bible unveils something, and it's really interesting, and if you've ever studied this, I may have talked about this um, in the past year or so, but it's good to kind of get this down. The afterlife is unveiled slowly across the pages of Scripture. Not all at once. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was really only one understanding among the Jews of what the afterlife was, of what happened after we died. Let me be clear on this. In the Old Testament, it was a place called Sheol. It was just a holding place. The way it was understood, and we, we can see this from reading the Old Testament scriptures, it was just a holding place for good souls and bad souls. If you die, you go to Sheol. What happens there? Who knows? You wait. And whether you're good or, or you're bad, that's where you go. Psalm 9.17 says the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. Psalm 49.15 says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. How's that? I don't know. I just, I just know. I have faith that that's going to happen. David writes, Psalm 16.10, prophetically speaking of Jesus, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. But beyond that, we don't have a whole lot. You read through the Old Testament, they understood that they didn't die and just cease to exist, but they went to this place, Sheol, and, and they were just there. And there's not a whole lot more discussion on it or understanding or explanation of it until Jesus comes along in the New Testament. And before his death, he opens wide an understanding that we didn't have before. He uses the Greek word, the Greek phrase Hades, speaking in the Greek, or as the New Testament's written in the Greek. But he explains what Hades, what this holding place, what Sheol really is. He gives a parable in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I'll let you read that on your own time sometimes. It's a fascinating parable. But in it, he opens up for us understanding about life after death, at least before the cross. He says Sheol, or Hades, is divided. It has a paradise side to it. It has a torment side to it. And in between, there is a chasm that cannot be crossed. So however you die, whatever state you are in when you die, whether you die in faith in the Lord or you die without faith, if you die in faith, you go to the paradise side of Hades, Sheol, or you go to the torment side if you have no faith at all in the Lord. But you still go to wait. 
To wait for what? To wait for redemption. As David said, you're not going to forget me. You'll redeem me. I know what's going to happen. God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. Psalm 49, 15. And Jesus, in the moments before his death, looks over at one of the thieves on the cross. Luke 23, 43. And says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say we're going to heaven today. He says, today, with immediacy, we will be together. And it will be in paradise. So in the Old Testament there's Sheol. In the New Testament it's before Jesus' death. Hades, paradise and torment. But also number three in the New Testament. After Jesus' death we see a completely new thing. Scripture tells us Jesus was a busy Messiah in those three days. He wasn't just lying in the grave. He wasn't just hanging out in the tomb. He was busy doing two specific things you need to be aware of. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7. Paul is writing and he says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, verse 9, says he ascended. What does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is he is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. It says he led, when he went up, when he ascended, he led a host of captives. Who is this host of captives? It's everybody who died in faith. It's everybody who would be found on the paradise side of Hades. If you die in faith in God prior to the cross, prior to the redemption bought on the cross at Calvary, if you die in faith, you're in that paradise side of Hades. When Jesus died and redemption was paid, the blood was paid, the price was paid, at that point now everybody on paradise side goes home. Because they have been finally purchased. Finally bought. Men like Abraham who Paul says in Romans 4.3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't righteousness, but it was a credit. It was a voucher, if you will. And the one who works, Paul says, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So until redemption happened, no human soul could approach the perfect presence of God. I don't care who you are. Moses couldn't come into the presence of God for all of God's perfection unless he was completely redeemed. Unless he was paid for. It didn't happen until the cross. So this idea of Sheol, now we can understand. Paradise and torment and the paradise side, I would tell you, is effectively shut down in the weekend following the crucifixion. There's no more need for it. It's gone after Jesus died and paid the price. Anyone who dies immediately goes to be with the Father. Immediately in the presence of God. So those of you who have friends, family members who have passed away, believing in Christ, straight to the Father. The soul, the spirit, is with him, present with him in heaven. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Paul tells us 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, he says we're of good courage. And we prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord. Paul sets up this dichotomy. If I'm at home in the body, I'm absent from the Lord. That's why we're longing for Him. That's why we desire Him. Because we're not completely with Him. Oh, we have great moments of worship. 
We have those times when we're alone with the Lord. The prayer is sweet and it's wonderful to be walking with Him. But we're not totally there. We're home in the body. And we're absent from the Lord. But if you are absent from the body, that is, the body is dead, it's buried, it's in the grave. You're absent from the body. Where's your spirit? Floating around somewhere? Down in the paradise of Sheol? No. You are with the Lord. Which is why Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not which, know which one to choose. I'm hard pressed from both, both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. This is great. Paul's having a struggle. Literally, it's cognitive dissonance, what they say in psychology. Part of him knows he needs to stay here, knows there's a job to do. The other part of him is going, man, I could leave today and it would be great. Which do I choose? Well, I can't kill myself, so I guess I'll stay here at least until until God calls me home. Paul had this no-fear approach to life, and I guarantee you it was driven by the fact that he knew if he was stoned to death, he would be with Jesus. If he was hung on a cross, he would go home. If he he had his head cut off, which is ultimately what happened to Paul, boom, home with the Lord. He had no fear, nothing to worry about. So Jesus did a couple of things. A couple of things during those three days. One, we know that he descended that he might lead a, captive, a host of captives up, releasing and shutting down that paradise side of Sheol. What else was Jesus doing? I'll answer that in just a second. Look at verse 2 of chapter 9. Okay, so the key was of the bottomless pit was given to Satan. He opened the bottomless pit, verse 2, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of the earth has power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing or any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember, back in chapter 7, 144,000 Jewish people were sealed. Anyone not sealed is stung. It goes on. Verse 5, they were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man and in those days men will seek death and will not find it they will long to die and death flees from them so here come these these locusts with scorpion stings and they sting and they sting and they sting and they sting and people don't die they just continue to get stung for five solid months Dang, the most horrendous plague of locusts in recent history was in Jerusalem back in 1915. Some 40,000 people died and the sun was literally blocked out during this massive storm of locusts. But what exactly are these locusts? Because realize they've just been let out of the bottomless pit, the abuso, the place where the worst of the demons don't want to go. Demons say, cast us into the pigs, not into the pit. Don't send us down there. What are these locusts? They aren't locusts. They are extreme demons. Revelation chapter 12 will tell more about this. It reveals that a third of all angels become Satan's hellish henchmen, become demons, fall with Satan when he fell. But these particular demons in Revelation chapter 9, are so bad, they are incarcerated in the abyss. They have been now chained in the abyss 
from the days of old, they are living, they are residents in the abyss. Right now, as we teach, as we read through this chapter, this group of demons are worse than all others. And they are trapped right now in the abyss. How did they end up there? How did the demons get there? Well, back to Jesus' resurrection uh, weekend business. Between his death and resurrection, remember, he did two things. He raised up a host of captives. He shut down that paradise side, took them, the souls, the spirits of those there, to be with him in heaven. But the second thing he did, and it's one of the most fascinating studies in the scriptures, he preached to disobedient spirits. I'm sure you've seen the verse before and you've wondered, what in the world is going on there? Listen to it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. Tells us that he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting when in the days of Noah. It's your first clue. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and then he goes on to say, If he didn't you know, keep them when they sinned, you think he's going to let you off the hook? But I want you to notice something. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4, it says he cast them into hell. The word translated hell is a bad translation in every Bible. Because it's a different word. In fact, it's the only time this particular word is used in the entire Bible. It's the word Tartarus. Tartarus in the Greek. Not Gehenna. Normally when you see the word hell in the scriptures, it's Gehenna. Referring to the Hinnom Valley in Jerusalem. The place of burning. Another study for another time. But Tartarus, it's only used here. Only used by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And it literally means not hell, but the abyss. The deepest abyss. Tartarus, the deepest abyss. So we have some clues here. That there were some disobedient spirits kept in prison since the days of Noah. They were cast into Tartarus, the deepest abyss. And Jude, Jude verse 6 tells us that angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, which we're reading about in Revelation chapter 9. Here are your clues. Put them all together. It happened in the days of Noah. These spirits were cast into the abyss because they did not keep their proper abode. Now let me take you a little further on this and add in one more clue. The book of Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 says the following. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. And they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This is a bizarre verse and people say, okay, what's this talking about? The sons of God came in to the daughters of men. And there are those who would say, those Bible commentators who would say the sons of God are the line of Seth. The believers, the the, the so-called Christians, not Christians yet, they didn't know about the name of Christ, but they are the ones who believe in God, so they're called the sons of God. Problem with that is, this phrase sons of God is used four times in the Bible. It's bene Elohim, and it's only used in Genesis 6-4 where it says the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and then the other times, the other three times are all in the book of Job. Let me read this to you. Job chapter 1 verse 6 says there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. How many human beings do we know who go present themselves to the Lord on a certain day in heaven? 
Listen, there's more. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. But this will put a cap on it for you. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. God is speaking to Job, and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Listen, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, Bene Elohim, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who is he talking about? Angels. Angels. This phrase, sons of God, refers to angels. Now listen to Genesis 6-4 again with that in mind. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, giants. Wait a minute, Rick. What are you saying here? You're saying that, um, that angels came down and slept with girls. Is that what you're saying? No. That's what the Bible's saying. <laughs> And it's wild, and it's hard to understand. And we go, wait a minute, can angels do this? Well, angels can look like people, that's for sure. They can eat like people. We know angels came and talked to Abraham, sat down and enjoyed a meal with him. We see other instances where what Peter says that you might be entertaining angels unaware. You might not even know you're talking to an angel. Look around. There might be one with us tonight. No, probably not. Um, <laughs> but why would Satan's henchmen do this? I mean, think about it. What purpose would there be for angels to, by the way, as is it Peter who said it, to leave their proper abode? They left their proper abode. There, there's a proper thing. There's a, there's a line of division here that says it's proper for angels to be in one area and humans to be in another, and they're not supposed to connect, but somehow these angels left their proper abode and connected in such a way as to corrupt the bloodline of humanity. And I think the reason why this is in Genesis chapter 6, preceding the flood, is this gives us more understanding as to why God had to flood the entire earth. Because the bloodline of humanity was being corrupted right and left. In fact, it was so bad we were down to eight people to save the entire history of mankind. Eight people left, Noah and his family. They were the only ones who had not been, in one way or another, corrupted. And so they got to get onto the ark. They were saved. Everybody else completely wiped out. Why? Because there was this horrible corruption that had taken place. So... So think about Satan's motive throughout all history. Corrupt the bloodline, stop Messiah. If in some way he could mess things up, he would do it to keep Messiah from coming at any point, to keep salvation from happening, to prove that God is not truthful, that he's a liar, his prophecies are untrue, and if Satan can prove that, guess what? Satan cannot be blamed for being cast out of heaven. Well, God doesn't keep his word, so what's the big deal? And that's been his agenda ever since the beginning. God destroyed the world back in Noah's day to save it. And so you might ask, okay, so what happened to these demons then, or these angels that did not keep their proper abode? These fallen angels become demons who did such a horrible thing. What happened to them? The Abuso, Tartarus, the bottomless pit. Think about it, gang. What would happen in our society? If on a given day, the worst of the worst criminals 
were suddenly sprung from prison in the hundreds of thousands. What would that be like? And now, apply that to these demons. What will happen when the worst of the worst of incarcerated demons are cut loose? Demons so perverted that they don't play by any rules. Demons so pent up with aggression that for thousands of years they've been held in chains. What would it be like? And what could Jesus have possibly said to these disobedient spirits? What could Jesus have said to him, to, to these spirits, during that three-day period between the cross and the resurrection? I'll tell you what he said to them. There are people that you cannot touch because they're covered by my blood. My blood has done the work. Redemption has happened. And your hellish authority is null and void over all those whose sin has been washed away by my redemptive act on the cross. You have no power. No power. Which leads me to understand a little bit about sin, gang. When I'm freed from my sin, I'm also freed from what demons can do. But when I live in sin, what sin does is relinquish authority to the demonic. This is why God doesn't want us to sin. It's not only the act of rebellion, it's not only that our sin hurts us, but it opens up the door for demonic activity. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, John says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. John says it very clearly. If you practice sin, if you live a sin lifestyle, guess what? You are under the authority of the devil. You're giving over the authority to him, to the demonic. And so, back in our study, Satan opens up this bottomless pit. It's horrifying, and this woe continues for five straight months, which, by the way, is the lifespan of a typical locust. Five months. Now listen to the description, and you'll see more the demonic in these creatures. Verse 7, the appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. By the way, interesting, in Italian, the word for locust is cavaletta. Cavaletta meaning little horse. For the Italian language describes locusts as little horses. And it tells us here, verse 7, the appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. Notice the, worst, the, the use of the word like throughout. John's painting a picture. This is one of those times where you can say, okay, it's not exactly, this is not exactly what they are, but it's like this. He was trying to help us understand that these things were hideous. It says their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing into battle. They had tails like scorpions and stings and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. It tells us verse 11 and they have a king over them. Wait a minute. The Bible tells us locusts don't have a king. They have a king. They're not locusts. They have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. Abaddon, Apollyon, it means destroyer. Now I used to think, and in fact the last time I talked to Revelation, I pointed to this and said I, I believe that's Satan, but I missed something here. For this is the angel of the abyss, and Satan is not yet the angel of the abyss. 
He is not yet the one who has been cast down to the abyss. It sounds more like this is a, a demonic henchman who was in the abyss. A king, a destroyer, under the authority of Satan. Satan, by the way, does have some organization to his armies, to his demons. And so they have this king over them, this Abaddon, this Apollyon. Probably not Satan, probably a higher up in Satan's realm, a grand demon, who leads all of these horrible, demonic, locust-like beings. I remember when I was a kid... It's on Outer Limits TV show. I used to hate the Outer Limits because it just freaked me out. Have you gone back and watched some of those old shows these days? It's like, it's a big deal. But when I was a kid, there was this one about this, this Martian ant that, that landed in a spaceship out in the, in, in the desert and he kind of walked along and he looked like a little ant. And you see from behind, here comes this ant and it went, everywhere it went. It just freaked me out. like, Ugh. And then it turned around and it had a human face on it. That totally flipped me out. I turned off the TV. I had nightmares for months about it. But that's what we're talking about. Think about it. Can you imagine? Here come these, these demon-like locusts. And they've got this long hair like a, like a woman. And they've got this face of a man. And, they're, and they have the tail of a scorpion. And as they're attacking, we have now moved from anything that could even possibly remotely be considered human destruction like nuclear war, we have now moved into something that is completely inhuman, absolutely supernatural, completely demonic. And this happening on the face of planet Earth in the Great Tribulation. These demons at work. These locusts who have a king. And this king over them is called the Angel of the Abyss, Abaddon. He is the destroyer. And Jesus said of Satan, John 10.10, 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Gang, there is nothing in Satan, there is nothing in sin which ultimately works out for good. It doesn't happen. Satan came for three reasons. To steal and to kill and to destroy. And that's it. That's what he will do. Now on the way there, people may experience various pleasures, but it will result in being life being stolen, and then being killed, and then being completely destroyed. And so these, these demons are let out. Verse 12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Verse 13 tells us, Then the sixth angel founded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now this is interesting. You've got to really kind of dial in for this. John gives us specifically the location of the voice. He says it's coming out of the golden altar. Remember the golden altar. The golden altar in the tabernacle. It would have been in that holy place. Some have debated about whether it was in the holy place or actually even in the holy of holies. But it was connected to the veil. It was right there. You'd walk into the holy place, you'd, you'd see the golden lampstand and the table of showbread on the other side. And then straight in front would be the golden altar of incense. This was a smaller altar. It had four horns on it, one on each corner. And on a specific, very special day, once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, studied this recently, the high priest would go in, actually around behind the veil, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Remember that? On Yom Kippur. But think about this. There's an interesting connection here. You've got to back up a little bit from Yom Kippur. Ten days earlier, at the sound of a trumpet, in fact it's called the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. 
On Rosh Hashanah, the trumpets blow as a celebration of the new year. And the Jewish people will at that point enter into a ten-day period of time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That ten-day period is called the Awesome Days. And it's ten days, listen to me, it's ten days spent, are you listening? On repentance. Ten days about repentance. The rabbis will teach that during that ten-day period of time, that those ten days, the awesome days of repentance, that anything that you've done, you can repent of and, and be freed of and be cleansed of. So important are those days. The trumpets blow, ten days go by, then Rosh, Rosh Hashanah, then Yom Kippur happens. Yom Kippur is that day of atonement. And you might say, so what? So look, a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. What's the connection here? Gang, it's a picture of repentance. It's the reasoning behind everything that we've just read with all these demons. You see, the trumpets blew, and they had ten days in which to repent, and then the Day of Atonement happened, where not only was the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, the blood was also dabbed on all four of the corners, the horns of the altar of incense, this same golden altar that we read of in verse 13. The reason, gang, and look at this, the reason why no one will be able to die during this five-month period of time, I'm convinced, the reason why no one will even be able to commit suicide, they'll want to when these demon locusts are attacking, the reason why God allows this horror to go on for five months and nobody dies is one simple word, repentance. This will be in these five months like the awesome days. God is pulling out the stops. It is not meanness. It's mercy. Dang, because the very reason for the trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 and 9 is to bring people ultimately to repentance. To get them to repent. To shake them up so dramatically. To bring them to that place of godly sorrow. So they will repent. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. Maybe you've been there. You've been to that place where, man, you look at your life and you feel bad about it. And you understand. Man, communion this morning, I was sitting there and I was blown away. It was just the connection of two songs you sang and I didn't even think about it before then. That whole idea of singing how great is our God and then suddenly take my body broken for you. And the distance between the two and the grace and the love that is so incredible. And I sit there sometimes and during communion think about the love that Jesus poured out for us and look at my life and I am sorry. That's not the sense of false guilt. It is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It's that recognition that I have messed up, Lord. And yet, God, I love you so much because you love me first. And I repent. I, I want to walk with you. Godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret that leads, Paul says, to salvation. Sorrow of the world just produces death. And just feel bad about yourself, sink into some kind of guilt and not do anything about it. That's the sorrow of the world. But God will bring about oftentimes in our lives sorrow so that we'll repent. So that we'll turn around. Because He'll do whatever it takes to bring us to a place where we can say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I desperately need my Father. Said this before, that God is always more concerned with your eternal condition than He is with your present comfort. So you may be uncomfortable in your life. Things may be going wrong in every direction. 
And it may very well be that the Lord is saying, Hey, I love you. Will you pay attention? Let me help you to that place of repentance. For five months, while these things are going on and these demons are wildly let loose and they think they're having a heyday, they're a tool. Remember, it was one of the angels of God, one of the good guys who blew the trumpet. And at that point, the star from heaven was handed that key to the bottomless pit, was allowed to release that kind of dramatic pain. And so, as on the Day of Atonement, when the four horns of the golden altar were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, along with the prayers of repentance offered up by the high priest, so now a voice sounds from the heavenly golden altar. It's probably the voice of Jesus himself, the Lamb who shed his own blood to atone. And now he calls for release. Verse 14, release, he says. Release. And as with Yom Kippur, following those ten awesome days, the time for repentance is over. Do the people repent? Will they repent? Read on. Verse 14, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. And the four angels, verse 15, who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now we see four more demonic angels. Well, wait, how do you know they're demonic angels? Partially because they're bound. These angels are not bound in the abyss, the abuso. They're not down there in the pit. But they've been bound in the river Euphrates. Interesting place for angels to be bound. Why would they be bound there? Well, the Euphrates River is on the is literally the true west bank of the Promised Land. The promised Land is supposed to biblically go all the way to the Euphrates River. So the Euphrates is right there on that border. Its boundaries also include Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. It was the official border of the Roman Empire, at least until AD 96, or in AD 96. It's also one of the four boundaries of the original Garden of Eden. There, the river Euphrates, was where a man whose name meant rebel founded Babylon. His name was Nimrod. Babylon was founded right there. Babylon is the location on earth that has been the location in the past of Satan's kind of headquarters. Babylon is to Satan what Jerusalem is to the Lord. Babylon, by the way, will again be to Satan what Jerusalem is to the Lord. But we'll read that later on in Revelation. And so the Euphrates has quite a place in history, both both past and future. And in this land so famously known, Babylon, for idolatry, we will see the final great surge of sin on planet Earth. Why would these four angels be bound then at the river Euphrates? one, One possible angel comes to mind. Daniel is praying, and he's praying for help. And as Gabriel comes, Gabriel tells him in the book of Daniel chapter 9, he says, man, I was coming... While you were praying, I was on my way here, but I had to fight my way through. And it took a while. Actually, it's not Daniel 9. It's one of the other chapters. I'll find it for you later. But he says, I had to fight my way. I had to get Michael's help to get through the prince of Persia. Who's the prince of Persia? That would be the demon over the area that is now called Iran. I wonder. I wonder. Maybe that's one of the angels that was bound here. But there are four angels, four demons Bound and their job, once they're released, once they're set free, now in the sixth trumpet judgment, they are set free and they come out and they kill one-third of humanity that's alive at the time. What does that mean? Think about this just for a moment. I did the math today. I was trying to figure this out. 
the rapture happens. And you can imagine a mass disappearance of all those who have faith in Jesus. All those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, boom, will go at the time of the rapture. Disappear. Just watched this movie the other night with Cheryl, The Forgotten. Have you ever seen The Forgotten? you got to see that movie. I mean, it's one of those alien abduction movies, so it's kind of lame. But, but the, the effects in it are awesome. And there's one point in the movie, oh, it just blows my mind every time I see it. i got to hit pause and rewind and watch it again. Because it looks like what I would imagine, in my twisted little mind, that the rapture might be like. There's a scene, if you've seen the movie, you know it, where this, this woman who is, it, she, it's too long to tell you, but she's standing by a police car, and the police woman is coming toward her, and she's going to help her out, and all of a sudden, boom, she's just ripped out of the picture. You watch her body literally just get sucked up into the sky, and she's gone. And every time I see that, I go, that is so cool. That's going to be me. And I'm there. I'm up. I'm gone. Anyway, I digress a little bit here. But the rapture happens. People are taken. They're caught up to be with the Lord, to meet Him in the clouds. A mass disappearance. Let's just throw a number out there, and I could be completely off on this, but let's say it's 100 million people worldwide. Could be more, could be less. But 100 million people leave, and we've got 6.4 billion people on the planet right now. 100 million people are gone. The Bible tells us then after that, so now we're down to 6.3 million or so, one-fourth of the people left behind are killed in Antichrist wars, Revelation chapter 6. One-fourth of all humanity dead, one out of four. Then we're told that one-third of that three-fourths left are killed, and at this point, half of the world's population prior to the rapture is either dead or gone. Half. Fifty percent. And this is the worst so far. For during this time of the four, not the demons, remember no one dies during those five months. But when the four angels bound to the Euphrates are set free, they kill a third of mankind, which would be over a billion people at the hands of these angels. More than a billion. You think the earth may be getting a little shaken up at this point? Jesus says, Matthew 24, 22, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And some will use this, by the way, to say, See, Christians are there in the rapture. For the sake of the elect. But let me remind you that the elect doesn't just refer to Christians, it refers also to Israel. They are called the elect of God, the Jewish people. And for their sake... For their sake, the days will be cut short. It won't continue on and on and on and on. It's the last three and a half years, and it will be over. The end is coming soon. I believe John's writing this for those who will be on earth at the time. I believe there will be those who are tracking, timelining the tribulation period with their Bibles open, knowing they missed the rapture, but knowing now they live in faith in Jesus Christ. We know at least that 144,000 will. And they'll have Bibles open. They'll be comparing what's happening as part of the Left Behind series that I think is really cool. How they've got a character, Zion Ben Judah, I think his name is, and how he's always reading the Scriptures, studying the Scriptures, trying to track a place where they are in the tribulation period. And I think people will do that. Part of the reason this book is here is those alive at the time will have opportunity to read and be saved. Well, will they be saved? I, I told you. We'll answer that question in just a second. Will they be saved? But reading on... The release of these slaying angels coincides with the release now of a massive military stampede, probably of human origin. Look at verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw 
In the vision, the horses and those who sat on them, the riders had breastplates, the colors of fire, and of hyacinth, and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of the mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Verse 18, And a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, and the smoke, and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. And for the power of the horses is in their mouths, verse 19, and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. Interesting, interesting, 200 million horsemen in this army. 200 million, let me give you some context for that. Currently there are about 160,000 allied troops in Iraq today. Back in the Gulf War, with 30 nations allied for that war, there were about 1 million soldiers in totality. And here we're seeing a picture. John writes about 200 million soldiers on horseback ready to attack. 200 million. Do we know what the population of the earth was back then? When John wrote this, it wasn't 200 million. He wrote down a number that was more than the number of people living. A number that is astounding. Some say, well, he just picked a number out of the sky. You know, if you're writing something like this, and you're making it up, you're going to be thinking in some kind of realistic terms, John uses a number that he couldn't have possibly known. A number larger than the population of planet Earth at the time. Which, by the way, is all the, reason, all the more reason for a literal rending of the book of Revelation. He's writing about something beyond comprehension, and yet the number is clear. And by the way, every other number in the book of Revelation is literal. Every one. So we get to this 200 million man army. How can that be? How could John possibly understand it? And yet, April 1965. Radio Peking made a stunning boast that was picked up in Time Magazine on May 21st, 1965, that said in five months, China claimed they could mobilize a militia of 200 million men. That was 1965, gang. And at this time, in the reading, in our studying, at this point in the tribulation, apparently, there will be an Asian coalition of sorts marching 200 million strong. We're going to see this more clearly in chapter 16. But Daniel chapter 11 verse 44, speaking of Antichrist campaign at Megiddo, going on, probably coinciding with this or around this time, Daniel writes that rumors from the east will disturb him. Something coming from the east is going to be disturbing to Antichrist. Something big coming from the east. It tells us in Revelation 16:12 that an angel will pour out his bowl on the great river, the river Euphrates, and its water will dry up. Well, why would its water dry up? So that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I believe what's indicated here is this 200 million man army coming from the east, flowing across the dried up Euphrates and entering the fray of the battle of Armageddon. And Antichrist at that point will begin to freak out. More on that to come. But back in chapter 9, we read this interesting description of these riders with uh, breastplates of colors of fire and the heads of the horses like the heads of light. It sounds almost demonic. It's a couple of possibilities. It could be demonic. At least we know it's demonically driven. 
But if it's not demonic, what would be the explanation for this fire and smoke and brimstone coming out of the mouths and these and these other you know, these horses with tails like serpents? It may very well be John's best description of modern weaponry. You think about what how would John describe a tank rolling across the ground, blasting brimstone and smoke and fire out of its mouth. How would John describe a cobra? or Apache, or a Blackhawk helicopter. What is that? It flies, it's got a tail, with it shoots with it. How would he describe these things? It's possible he's seeing something like this. But whatever its description, gang, it's a demonically inspired event that causes this massive host to move. This massive evil march across the Pan-Asian Highway, which, by the way, was completed back in 1989, en route toward Megiddo. But remember God's purpose in all of this. God's purpose in all of this up to this point, it is repentance, repentance, repentance. I will do whatever I have to do to shake up the heathen world to get people to repent that they might, even at this late date in history, have salvation by the name of Jesus. So do they? Do the people repent? This game is the gut-wrenching tragedy of the trumpet judgments. Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. They did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, their immoralities nor of their thefts. And this will be the response of mankind through the rest of the tribulation. You will not see another person repent. The door is shut. It's over. The ten awesome days, complete. The day of atonement, come and gone. The opportunity, you'll see, will still be there. God will still be saying, repent, please turn back. But not a single soul, according to the book of Revelation, from here forward, will repent so as to receive salvation. Quickly, we're almost done. What they would rather have, rather than a relationship with God, rather than salvation, is their idolatry, which will be massively widespread as people are seeing, think about this, seeing and experiencing demonic activity on the face of the earth. They see all this stuff going on. Wow, worship the demon locust. Maybe that will cause them to stop attacking. Worship these things, these, these four demons coming out of the river Euphrates. Let's worship and then maybe things will get better for us. Murder will naturally increase as respect for life fails on a widespread scale. If you can imagine one billion people dying all in an instant, who would care about human life except for their own? And so the Bible tells us that there will be murder. We've already seen this in so many ways. Sorcery. The word for sorcery here... They did not repent of their sorceries is an interesting word. You might want to know it. It's pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy. It's not sorcery as you know it. It's drugs. Drug use. It will serve, by the way, drugs for a couple of obvious purposes during the tribulation. One, for a reduction of pain. People will want to do drugs just so they don't feel the awful pain that's going on. The stings of the demon locust. Man, give me some more coke. I mean, give me some quaaludes, just put me down. Give me some methamphetamine so I, so I have you know, some, some energy to get through this horrible day. Reduction of pain, but also I believe there will be a religion of pharmakia, a religion of drugs. The drug culture and false religion fusing in this time 
to be a hand-in-hand experience for one big blinding delusion. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, he talks about that there will be a deluding influence, and this may be what he's referring to, it may be part of it. That people will be so stoned out of their minds as all of this wildness is going on, and so deluded by idolatry and the murder and all these things happening that they just won't even care anymore. And immorality, the word for immorality at the end here, they would not repent of their immoralities. The word is pornea, where we get pornography. And you might ask as we read this, how does the world get to this point? How does the world come to this? How does a demon get his hooks into entire nations, much less people groups or individuals? And it's already happening. And we see demons getting their hooks into people today. Things are right on track in a very sin-soaked world. For all these things that we've talked about, and for sin itself, like we said earlier, it opens up the soul to demonic vulnerability. God knows this. When he tells us not to sin, not to practice sin, don't be involved in the things of sin, Paul says, don't even talk about certain sins. Avoid even the discussion of it. Why? Step back. Because along with those sins comes demonic activity that is powerful and is insidious and is incredibly dangerous. And all these things, all the sins of mankind open us up to this demonic vulnerability. And when repentance is refused, as we've seen in chapter 9, sin is chosen. It's the only alternative to repentance. Murder diminishes human life as disposable, bringing up demonic vulnerability. Illicit sex introduces a world that most of us would not even understand of herpes and AIDS, of unwanted pregnancies. But these things are not the greater problem, tragic though they may be. The problem is the systematic destruction of all things precious of life itself. And remember the demons have a king over them, Abaddon, Apollyon, the destroyer. And the thief comes to kill and destroy. Flipping your Bibles back over to, to Joel and we'll finish there. I just want to end on an up note. <laughs> because chapter 9 is brutal. And much of what we're going to study for the next few chapters as we head through studying and looking at the rest of the tribulation, it is brutal stuff. But I want to say this last thing before we leave tonight, that there um, is an interesting, consistent theme, a constant that I've noticed, especially from the language of people who have come to Christ later in life rather than earlier. People who didn't find Him at a young age, such as David or, or myself, but people who have found Christ, who have found salvation, who are so thrilled just to be in the presence of Jesus. But they'll say things often like, if only I had known sooner. I wish I had known years ago. I wish I, you know, for me as a kid growing up going to church, there were times where I said, man, I just wish I was unchurched so that I could love Jesus like some of these people who didn't grow up going to church. And now as an adult I say, I am so thankful that I have that past. That I grew up in a Christian family. That my parents taught me to love the Lord. I am so thankful for that. Because again, I hear these phrases, man, I could have avoided so much heartache if I had just known I've just known the Lord. I'm so glad that I know Him now. But I wish I had known Him then. Well, I have great news for you. 
Great news. Joel chapter 2 verse 17. Joel writes, Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. and Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. And do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be jealous for His land. And listen, will have pity on His people. Now skip down to verse 25. He says, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten the creeping locust the stripping locust and the gnawing locust the great army which I sent among you you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you then my people will never be put to shame Verse 27, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. It's after that that he goes on into this final fulfillment. He he says, it will come about after this, I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What is this saying? Gang, it's wonderful news. Not only, listen, when I repent, not only does God forgive me, but he restores He says, I will restore to you, I will make up to you, verse 25, for all those years that were lost by the gnawing locusts. Those demons maybe that were in your life, that kept you from the Lord. Those negative things happening, maybe back in your childhood, stuff that we we bury and stuff that psychologists go, oh, well, we've got to continue to work through this stuff. No, you need to come to the Lord. Because no psychologist can restore to you the joy and the peace and the, and the presence of God. Only God can bring that. And he says, listen, repent. Come to me. Trust me. And not only will I give you forgiveness, I will give you restoration in your soul. I will make up for all of that. I will wipe it away. I will make your life better and make up what has been lost. And the key to this wonderful restoration, both now and then, is repentance. It's just repentance. It's letting go of all that stuff. Then, then, Revelation 9, the Bible tells us repentance won't happen. And so the locusts will strip the land clean. And the demonically charged armies will kill another third of mankind. It'll be bloody. It'll be awful. What about now? Will repentance happen in our lives? I'll leave with the question of Jesus for you to consider tonight. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? When Jesus returns, how about with you? Will He find faith in your heart? Father, we just thank You for loving us. We ask for restoration. For Father, even in this group gathered tonight, and there is an incredible amount of love for You here tonight, Father. I look at the faces of my brothers and sisters in Christ and I know that there is love for you. And there is passion for you and a desire to be with you. That's why everybody's showing up tonight. But Father, I also know, looking at these faces, that there are those who have had a, a history without you, a past, that they would just as soon hadn't happened. As wonderful as it is, Father, that they are in you today, There are those who would look back and say, Oh, I just wish I'd known. And so, Father, I pray that you will bless them with this wonderful restoration that you promise. That you will make up 
for the years that the locust swarmed. That you will make up, Lord, for the years that sin had its negative impact in our past. Make up for it, Father, and restore unto us, as the Bible tells us, the joy of our salvation. Praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.